Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Awesome. I'm so glad to see all of you here this morning. If you are joining us here at Hosanna for the first time here in our room, or if you're joining us online, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Jude, really diving into the meat of this letter, which is all about our call to battle, our call to fight for the truth. And the opening truth that Jude gets into in this letter um, is a really critical one to eternalize, kind of the foundation to build from, and it's simply this, some things never change. You know, this letter is all about apostasy. And apostasy is the subject from the front to the end of this letter. And what he's going to establish up front is apostasy is not new. Now, for those of you who don't remember, apostasy is defined as defecting from the truth, leaving the truth, departing from the truth. In modern parlance, if you're on social media, it's called deconstructing from the truth, which is what a lot of young Christians are doing now as they deconstruct from their faith. Now, apostates then are defined as someone who once professed to be of the truth but has abandoned or rebelled against it. And it is someone who rebels against the faith after claiming to once believe in it. Now, a question comes up when you talk about apostasy is, is, um, is this. Is apostasy and hypocrisy the same thing? Are they the same? Well, there's some similarities, but I believe they're different because biblically, you know, um, I believe that both the saved and the unsaved can wear the uniform of a soldier in God's army. They can both wear the uniform. Um, the saved will sometimes do wrong things while wearing that uniform, and then be called and named hypocrites by the world, right? It happens all the time. Christians fall, and the world wants to point and say, hypocrite, hypocrite. But they're still genuinely a soldier in uniform. They just happen to be performing conduct unbecoming. An apostate is one who wears the uniform but was never a genuine soldier at all. We call that stolen valor in our modern world, right? An apostate is one who wore that uniform, but then in the context of Jude and some of the teachings here, they have then taken off that uniform and revealed who they were the entire time. And in our modern world, it looks like some that, that may have been raised in the church, maybe they, they went to camps, they went on some mission trips, maybe they're well-studied and well-versed in Scripture, but they never really knew God personally themselves. They never knew God salvationally. You know, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus kind of touches on this as he is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount with some final warnings about true faith. And he says this in Matthew 7, 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So contextually, the, the, the narrow gate, the difficult road, is the truth that leads to true salvation. And he said, few find it. But then in verse 15, he goes on to start talking about false prophets who come in sheep's clothing or the uniform, but really, they're ravaging wolves, Jesus says there. So these are ones who come in and they look like sheep, they smell like sheep, 
They're wearing the right clothes, they say the right things, but they support and proclaim false truths. And then he goes on there to say you'll ultimately recognize them by the, by the fruit of their lives. But then he says something right after that which is very interesting in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is right after he just got saying, look, there's a broad way and a narrow way, and few find the narrow way, the true road to salvation. And there's going to be false teachers and false prophets that come among you, and they look like you, and they smell like you, and they talk like you, but they're just trying to destroy you. And then he says, there's going to be some who say, Lord, Lord, but only, those, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You know, we should not be surprised when we see Christian influencers on social media, Christian musicians, Christian sports heroes, whatever, people who have proclaimed the Christian faith we shouldn't be surprised when we see some of them coming to a place of renouncing their faith and deconstructing, as they say today. The whole idea of revisiting truth and rethinking beliefs that were once held as absolutely valid and true, it's not a new thing. It's been going on for a very, very long time. And according to Jude, it was going on in his time, and it was going on for thousands of years prior to his time. Jesus predicted this ongoing issue in the parable of the wheat and tares, if you remember that, that the wheat was, was sown and grew, but tares came in among the wheat and grew with it. And in that parable, he said that the tares looked exactly like the wheat. They looked so much like the wheat that you couldn't even tell the difference. Even skilled farmers couldn't tell the difference until they ripened, until the fruit was shown. But the idea there is that the wheat and the tares can grow together can grow in the same field together, they can wear the same uniform and look the same and smell the same. But one is real and the other is fake. Paul went on to predict a great falling away in the end times that resolved around spiritual deception and the corruption of the truth. And thus Jude is writing that we have to fight for truth. We have to contend for the faith because it is under attack. But it's not a new thing that it's under attack. It has always been under attack because Satan has always come against God and his people. And he has always stood against the truth because he knows that people, when they come to the truth and receive the truth, they receive salvation. They are eternally in God's family. And if he could stop that, he will do everything he can to do it. So today here in Jude, we're looking at verses five through 11, and we're gonna learn three lessons on, on really what fighting for the truth is founded on, how to fight for the truth, how to fight with the truth, especially in the face of deception and apostasy. But before we get to that, let's worship. We wanna praise God because he is worthy. He is glorious. He is the one who has saved our souls and made the way for us to live with him forever. And, and gosh, we're so thankful for that, aren't we? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We thank you, God, that you gave us your truth, that we could learn it and study it and live it. But God, we're also called to fight for it and to defend it, God. 
And Lord, so much of that wraps around us just being people who stand for the truth and proclaim truth and respond with truth. Lord, yes, we're to do so lovingly and kindly and and genuinely, God, but we're also to do so boldly and confidently, Lord. And this letter, God, is is a letter of, of, of fighting and being called to fight, Lord. And so, God, as we start digging into it this morning, that you would just encourage us, Lord. God, if some of us have, have stepped out of the fight altogether and kind of maybe adopted this, you know, my faith is my faith and I'm just gonna live it alone, Lord, that we would be encouraged, God, to step back into the fight, Lord, because lives are on the line, souls are on the line, and you've called us to be people who go out and sow that seed, who take the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it to a world that, that desperately needs it, God. That we would be people who lovingly go out and defend the truth, to stand for the truth and proclaim the truth, Lord, that people had come to know the truth. So God, just speak to us this morning. We love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we are in Jude. There's only one chapter, so Jude verses five through 11. And I mentioned that there are gonna be three lessons we're looking at today on, on really fighting for the truth and fighting with the truth and establishing a foundational understanding of, of why we fight. And so, He opens up here with the first lesson on fighting for the truth and fighting with the truth, and that lesson is to remember your training. So if you're taking notes, jot that down. Remember your training. Jude, verse five, he says, now I want to remind you, although you came to know these things once and for all. So he's opening his letter here as he gets into the meat of it by calling his readers to remember. And he's gonna go on to give us three Old Testament examples that, that, that um, show us how seriously God takes truth. But he says that phrase there, although you came to know these things once and for all. That's the same exact phrase in the Greek that he used back in verse three, where it said once for all. And if you remember from that study, the phrase means once for all time. All right, so it's once for all time, you've learned these things. And so what he's referring to is Judah's telling his readers, look, I'm, I'm reminding you of some truths you've already learned. Truths that will never change. Truths that don't alter based on culture. Truths that don't shift and modify based upon how you feel today. They are truths, and as truths, they do not and will not change. And so he's gonna go on to to share three stories about what God did in regard to those who did not believe in truth. These people that we've referred to as apostates. And it's gonna show us that God wasn't passive. He wasn't nonchalant. He wasn't cavalier or no big deal or you do you when it came to the truth of living and the truth of who he was and the truth of salvation. Quite the opposite, he took it very, very seriously and he dealt very seriously with those who rejected the truth. Now, as I said last week, you know, the nicest part of this whole letter is when he says, dear friends, a couple verses ago. And so this letter gets gets more intense as we go go forward. And it was kind of interesting to me because last week as I was teaching, the room was just silent, like silent. You know, and, and as, a, as a teacher, you know, when the room is dead silent, you, you start to think in your head, did I say something wrong? Do I have a booger on my face? Right? You know, it's, it's did I offend? Right? It, it, it was weird. And it was just, it was quiet through the whole thing. But after the study, um, a number of you were just like, just 
so encourage you. Wow, my gosh, I was so ministered to, right? So, so, um, so we're going to keep going through this, and it is going to get intense and continue to get intense, but it's what God wants to say. It's in his word, and so let's keep digging. But this idea of fighting for truth and fighting with the truth requires that we recall what we know as true. It requires that we recall these things. You know, lessons that we learn must be recalled in our lives in order for those lessons to be active in our fight. We have to remember why we fight and what happens if we don't fight and the purpose behind our fighting so that we are continually strengthened, unmotivated to keep fighting for the truth. And for the truth to have an impact in the present, as believers, we have to remember the past. We have to remember the past. You know, this Friday is Veterans Day, and I wanted to just take a moment to, to recognize the veterans in the room here. Um, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or anything, but I just wanted to let you know that, that we appreciate you guys immensely. We thank you so much for your service. Yeah. You know, you are people who, who literally answered a call and went and, and, and put your lives on the line in fighting for our country and our freedoms and the, and the truth of what America represents. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart and this church's heart in the room and online. Thank you, veterans, for doing that. Um, but we, we remember Veterans Day every year, and we appreciate the, the, the truth of the freedoms we have today by remembering those who have defended those freedoms. Um, September 11th is one we've been recognizing for a long time now. We remember September 11th as we remind ourselves the truth that terrorism cannot be tolerated. And so every year we remember the losses of that day as a nation and reflect. December 7th is coming up, and that was the day that will live in infamy as we remember the attack on Pearl Harbor and those who lost, lost their lives there. In Israel, there's a Holocaust memorial to remember what happened during the Holocaust. And we, we remember, we reflect on these days and take a moment because we want to remember you know, what we fought for, why we fought. We reflect on what would have happened if we didn't fight, if we didn't step in. And so we remember so that we don't forget the why behind things, the why we fight and the what happens if we don't. And so that's what Jude is doing here as he's appealing to memory, as he's calling people to remember. And so he says, now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. That's the first thing he wants them to remember, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Who saved a people out of Egypt? Jesus. Hang on to that for a moment, okay? It's not Jesus plus special knowledge. It's not Jesus plus other works and things. It's not Jesus and this or that and, and all this other stuff that in their time and even in our time, people try to bring into our faith to make it really about them and not about God. It's Jesus. But look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight. You could turn there or swipe there if you want. But in Deuteronomy chapter eight, it's a whole chapter about remembering that God saved the people out of Egypt. And so Judah's saying, look, I want you to remember this. So in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, it says this. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. Who did? The Lord your God. But what did Jude say? Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. Guess what? Jesus is God. That is a truth of scripture that is constantly under attack by cults, by false teachers everywhere. 
But in Deuteronomy 8, it then goes on from there where he starts to, to recount how God took care of them, right? He, he gave you manna so that you would trust him for sustenance. Your clothing didn't wear out for 40 years. He even says your feet didn't swell the whole time, right? How awesome was that walking around the desert? And then the idea is, is that, yes, look, it's been tough coming out of Egypt and, and going through the wilderness. It's been difficult, but God has been training you to trust and obey him to trust and obey his word, to trust and obey his truth. And then later on in Deuteronomy 8:11, he says this, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I'm giving you today. Remember that God has protected you and has led you out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Don't forget him by what? Disobeying him. What does that tell us? Can we live a life actively and intentionally and go, oh, you know, I, I remember God, but I'm living in disobedience to him and his will and his way? There's a conflict there is what it's telling us. You can't really do both. But in Deuteronomy, he then goes on after verse 11 to say, look, he protected you. He gave you water to drink when there was none. And so, so trust him. Obey him, obey his word, his covenant, his promises. Obey him, keep his commandments. And this is the whole idea there of he's calling them to not forget what God had done. That it was God who saved you, not anything else. God did the saving. Paul did the same thing in Romans chapter 15, verse 15, where he said, nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points. You know, fighting for truth requires remembering our training and what we've been taught and what those truths were. Peter did the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He says, therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. And so Jude is opening here saying, look, you know these things. I know you know these things. I know you know that I know you know these things but I want to remind you of these things nonetheless, that God's word, his truth, Jesus, when believed, when trusted, when followed and obeyed, leads to life. That is the truth. And that is the truth that was under attack in Jude's time, and it's the truth that has been under attack the whole time. That is Jesus, who is our hope and our salvation. And truth, just in general, but specifically this truth, it needs to be reinforced. It needs to be reintroduced. It needs to be recalled. It needs to be repeated, I think, for every single generation. Because as we learn, especially through the Old Testament, you would have a generation that got it. God is everything. Jesus is everything. He's my focus. He's my life. And then the next generation would be like, yeah, I, re I remember that, 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 that God person that my parents believed in. And then the next generation, oh, that was my grandparents' faith. And then the next generation was... We don't even remember him. And so we have to recall and bring to mind and remember these things. You know, some lessons are so important in our life that we need to hear them over and over again. You know, parents, you get this. You're like, didn't I already tell you? Why are you doing this again? You know? And the value of truth, the defense of truth, the stand against false teaching, the stand against false teachers um, is so important. If you study through the New Testament, it's touched on in every single New Testament book except Philemon. So of every single letter that God has given us in his word, 
the overwhelming, except for Philemon, but you go through it and they all talk about standing for truth and defending truth and standing against false teaching. Um, you think it's important? Absolutely. You think truth is worth fighting for? Absolutely. And as I said earlier, remembering what God has done, what he has said, the lessons we have learned in the past, they give us strength and they give us reason to fight in the present. And that's why I say very boldly, we don't need new truths. We don't need your truth or my truth. We need the truth. That's what our world needs. That's what our schools need. That's what our governments need, the truth. The truth of God. And that's why at Hosanna, our mission statement, right, to know the truth, to live the truth, to share the truth. Because Jesus is the truth. He is the answer. And that's why we stand on that so firmly. And so the first lesson on fighting for the truth and fighting with the truth is to remember your training in the truth. Because if it was true then, it's true now. Because truth does not change. Jesus saves. He always will. And his method of salvation will never change. So the second lesson on fighting uh, for truth and fighting with the truth is that judgment is historical. You know, part of the gospel we preach involves the truth that judgment on sin is coming. That's part of the reason why we preach the truth, right? We preach the truth because without Christ, judgment will fall upon you. Without being saved, you're not saved. And so we preach the gospel, the hope of salvation, so that people can be saved from the judgment that is to come. And when we forget that, we could find our defense of the truth kind of softening and weakening a little bit. Almost as if we don't really believe judgment is coming, so we don't really need to warn people about it. Now, it's not that we've rejected that, but, but if we act that way, if we start to forget that judgment is coming, we can find ourselves weakening in our defense of the truth. It's not that big of a deal for me to, to speak up or to speak out. It's really not that big of a deal for me to go vote Christian values. It's really not that big of a deal for me to you know, fill in the blank. You know? Now again, I know we all have personal convictions in things, and, and those convictions are between you and God, and so follow those things, right? Listen to the Lord. But in a general sense, if we choose not to fight when we know we're being called to fight and step in, because, well, well, do we really believe that judgment is coming? That's kind of the idea here that I'm bringing up. Because the truth is, is judgment will fall on all of those who don't have Christ. That should break our heart. I, I will admit, it doesn't break my heart as often as I would like it to, and it's a regular prayer of mine. God, break my heart for the lost. Break my heart for the lost, because judgment is coming upon them. And it's real, and I believe it's real. And I study it and I learn it. And, 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 and those who don't believe God's truth about who Jesus is and salvation and sin and all of that, judgment is coming. And knowing that is, is, is meant to motivate us to fight, to step into the fight, to defend truth. And so Jude goes on to give us three examples from the past of this specific truth that judgment is historical and it really illustrates that God is not afraid to judge. Even those in, in what we would call the most favored positions. Look at verse five again. 
It says, I want to remind you that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. So the first example on the list here is the nation of Israel. And you go, well, that's God's people, God's chosen people. I think that might be why they're first on the list, to establish the seriousness of what he's talking about here. And we know the story about Israel, right? They were enslaved in Egypt. God miraculously delivered them, right? You could read about it through Exodus. You know, he sent the, the plagues on Egypt. And then they went out and they fled and then they were trapped up against the, the Red Sea and God opened the Red Sea and they crossed over, right? And Pharaoh tried to pursue and the sea crashed in on them. And then they were in the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness, God fed them miraculously with manna from heaven and they were thirsty. And so, you know, Moses, you know, struck a rock and the water came out, you know, and just all these really interesting stories that incidentally, if you go and you research some of this, like there's a rock in the wilderness, still there today, that is cleaved right down the middle. Interesting. And when you look at the ground in front of it, there's plenty of evidence of massive, sudden water erosion. I mean, really cool things that, 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 that proved us that the Bible really happened. But God did this miracle with his people. As they were in the wilderness, he followed them around by day as a, in, in, in the cloud, which I think, how nice. I'd love to have shade all day long if I was walking around in the desert for 40 years. And so there was a cloud there. But then at night, it tells us that he appeared and watched over them as a pillar of fire. How nice. It's dark and scary in the desert, so God gave them a nightlight. Wonderful, his, his care, his concern for his people. Of course, you know, these things represented his character and his nature and stuff. But it tells us there, Jude says that ultimately, those who did not believe those who did not trust in him, those who did not trust in his word, his way, his truth, ultimately were destroyed. Destroyed. That's, that's a heavy word there, right? It means utterly wiped out. And if you know the story, it's God destroyed an, an entire generation of Israel, ages 20 and up, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. Why? Because Joshua and Caleb believed God, took him at his word. We don't care that there's giants in the land. God said it's ours. We're going to be obedient to that. But why did God destroy all these people? Apostasy. Apostasy. These people kept turning away from God and his truth. They kept defecting from God's truth. They kept rebelling against him over and over and over. And we read the story, right? They kept saying, you know, everything, every time things would get tough, oh, take us back to Egypt. Really? You want to go back into slavery? Oh, if we had just died in the wilderness, it would have been so much better. Just complaining and complaining. And eventually God's like, okay, you want to die in the desert? I'll let you do that. And they perished. But I want you to notice there what it says is that those that died were unbelievers. It was those who did not believe. Those are the ones that perished in the wilderness. Their unbelief led to destruction. Unbelief leads to destruction. We have to know that and internalize that and believe that and be motivated by that. Jude's point here is that the Savior is also the judge. The Savior is also the judge, even with, with his chosen people Israel. 
God is indeed a God of love, yes, but he's also a God of wrath against sin. And those who do not have the Savior will have the judgment. It's historical. The second example Jude gives us of this is the angels of verse six. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Now there's a couple different ideas on who these angels are and what they did exactly to be chained up and it's beyond the scope of today's study to go into that in detail, but I did go into that in detail in a, in a study that I did in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. The title is The Unseen War. I share that to say it's on YouTube. If you're interested, go watch it, all right? Um, but I personally believe that this is a reference to some actual particular angels that did a particular heinous thing, and, and it says there they stepped outside of their own position. That means stepped outside of their f- sphere of authority and, and their proper dwelling, and I believe it's referring to the story we find in Genesis 6, where it says that angels had, um, I believe it's talking about angels having sexual relations with human women, and their offspring were what's called the Nephilim or the fallen ones or giants. That's my personal opinion of that. Again, there's other opinions, but um, um, that's what I believe he's referring to. Regardless of your interpretation, Jude's point here in his letter, in the context of his letter, is that even some angels, specially created beings of God, rebelled against what was right and true. They rebelled against what they had authority to do and not do. They rebelled against the truth of God's word and the constraints on their lives. And creatures who once had a special position of privilege and authority and blessing and opportunity were judged according to the truth for apostatizing against the truth. And then the third example he gives us on the list here in verse seven is Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, most believers, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We're familiar with it. It's recorded in the Old Testament. It's commented a lot in the New Testament. But although there is a modern push to reinterpret this story, there is a modern push to redefine the story in the light of current culture, um, historical evidence tells us how history has always interpreted the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It has always been interpreted in one primary way, that the primary sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, the primary sin was aggressive sexual deviancy expressed in homosexuality. It's always been understood to be that way in history. Now you go back and you read the story, you'll see it was the men of Sodom wanting to have homosexual relations with two ambassadors that God had, had sent to the town, and then they were judged. Now, there are references to other sins that Sodom and Gomorrah had there, but in recent times, there's an aggressive push to reinterpret this story. Oh, it wasn't a sin of sexual deviancy. It wasn't the sin of homosexuality. It was, a, it was a lack of hospitality. That's why God burnt the whole place up with fire and brimstone. Now, yes, there was a lack of hospitality, but that wasn't the point. That wasn't the thing. That wasn't the sin. There was a sexual deviancy problem in that place because I believe even Lot there was like, oh, hey, take my daughters. Deviancy going on, all kinds of deviancy, but the one we have represented in the story there is this aggressive, we wanna take these men 
and, and have homosexual relationships with them. Now, I, I, I say this very kindly because I'm, I'm not like, all oh, gay people are going to hell and blah, 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 blah. The sin, the unrepented sin of sexual, um, homosexuality will lead to judgment. I'm just going to be honest with that. If you engage in and, and, and continue in this type of behavior, judgment will come. Judgment will come. And it's a truth that Jude is bringing up here, and it's a truth that false teachers of today, they, they have to reinterpret this story. They have to reinterpret it in order to say, oh no, homosexuality is acceptable to God. It's a perfectly acceptable lifestyle to live in. God's okay with it. They, they have to reinterpret Sodom and Gomorrah in order to be able to say that. But the question is, is why would Jude bring that up? What, is, what does homosexuality have to do with apostasy? Like, what, what's the connection here? Well, if you remember in Jude verse four, he gave us the, the characteristics of these apostates, and he said, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly. And then he says, turning the grace of our God into sensuality. They turn the grace of God into sensuality. Or put it another way, they use grace as a license for sexual immorality. What does that look like? Well, they'll say things like, the Bible teaches that that God loves us and accepts us just as we are. So that means I could live however I want because that's just who I am. I could live any lifestyle I want because it's just who I am. Or, or, Or they'll say, you know, God is a God of love and so love every expression of love and every lifestyle lived in that expression of love, it's all acceptable to God. They take the grace of God, which said, God says, don't clean yourself up and come to me. You're already wrecked. I know that. Come to me as you are. Trust in me. Repent of your sin. Let me clean you up and forgive you and let's move on from that. That's the grace. But they say, no, God's grace, come as you are, means I could be whoever I want to be and still claim the, the, the safety of salvation. That's not truth. That's not truth. And so Jude, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah here, and he uses two very particular terms I want to point out to you. He says uh, that they were engaged in sexual immorality. That word in the original language means sexual deviation from what is custom or law. Now, contextually, the context is God's truth about sexuality, God's truth about sexual expression, what God says all of that is and defined, they were deviating from that definition, and then he uses this word perversions. Now, in other translations, that word perversions actually reads, went after other flesh, all right? That word very specifically in the original language means to engage in unnatural or homosexual intercourse. Can't get around it. That's what the word means. And because these false teachers, they evidently felt it was, they, they, they were free. They felt the freedom to either endorse or practice immoral sexual autonomy. Again, what does that look like? I can love whoever I want to love. You can love whoever you want to love. Because God is love, and and you can't say I'm wrong, you can't say it's sin, you can't say anything about my behavior. You're judging me. 
And Judah's saying, look, I want you to know that those who denied God's truth when it came to sexual expression, when it came to sexuality, when it came to the expression of that, those who denied God's truth when it came to those things, he judged them. He judged them. God judged that town as another example, his third example of what happens to those who deviate from God's truth. And those who tried to turn the grace of God into a license to, per, to pursue deviant sexuality. Now, modern thinking, it's, it's we have to adapt scripture to, 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 to accommodate our evolving culture. Today, it's called progressive Christianity. If you're on social media, you see it all over the time. People are deconstructing their faith and, and they're progressive Christians now and, and, and they're constantly fighting against the Bible and they say things like the Bible was written in ancient cultural times, so you know, when God said a certain thing, he was accommodating himself to that ancient culture. But, but we have to um, review that because since culture has changed, we then have to uh, adopt the idea that scripture changes as well. It should be read and interpreted through the lens of what is culturally acceptable now. That's what they say, especially when it comes to ideas of sexuality and, and sexual expression. But, but the reality is, is the culture today <laughs> um, isn't all that different than it's always been. Some things never change. And the scripture still says the same thing about it now as it did then. Neither has changed very much. What do I mean by that? Well, um, archaeologists and historians um, kind of, there's a, a, a general consensus that over the course of general history, over the course of general human history, um, sexuality amongst people has always been fluid and has always been unrestrained. And, and not endorsing it, they're just saying it's always been all over the map. And then you go into the Old Testament, and you see that the pagan reality of the time in, supports that, so much so that the Jews had specific laws about some really things. You're like, they, they, they really had to have a law to say don't do that? Yeah, because people are doing it. And there's things in there and you read, that, that's gross, that's disgusting, that's foul. And it's like, yeah, but there had to be laws because deviancy was a common part of culture, of human culture. Now you come all the way up through culture and Christianity gets established and as Christianity just kind of washed over the Roman world, right, which is the Western world of the time, where incidentally during Roman culture, homosexuality was common and rampant, pedophilia was common and rampant, all these really horrible sexually deviant things um, in, in expressions of just people doing just all manner of stuff. It was all common in the Roman culture. But as Christianity started to grow and washed over all of that, we find historically that Western culture gradually started to turn towards godly biblical morality regarding human sexuality. And then it carried through the histories, right? Now, Judaism and Christianity were never accommodating to, to any type of sexual deviancy from God's design, right? It was always marriages between one man and one woman. And incidentally, there are only men and women, right? It's, it, it's, it's always supported those ideas. But Judaism and then Christianity were always clearly aimed at bringing humanity back in line with God's intended desire, with God's creation, with God's intention for all that. But what we see today 
is we see in our Western culture a very aggressive and intentional departure from God, a very aggressive and intentional departure from God's truth, an intentional departure from the word of God and what it has to say, and and society is simply returning to what the norm has always been. We're not in some renewed, enlightened time of sexual expression. It's just society reverting back to what is always the norm in, in, in just the general fallenness of our nature. And the last thing I'll say about that, to, to bend or to twist or to reinterpret God's truth to, to accommodate fluctuating sexual norms and, and identifications, um, one just ignores why the truth was given in the first place but also robs the revelation of truth of its power to keep mankind from, from engaging in, in, in destructive behaviors. And as we stand for truth, and as we fight for truth, and as we fight with truth by proclaiming the truth, by um, teaching the truth, which incidentally all involves in identifying error and saying, nope, that's error, that's wrong. When we do all of that, we can't forget that judgment is historical. That judgment is historical. It's established and it will continue on those who deny, twist, or pervert the truth. Now again, that's not so we could stand on a soapbox and go, see, we're superior and we're better than you and God hates you. It's so that our hearts break for those who don't have the truth. Those who are enslaved to sin and enslaved to these things that we would say, you know what? Gosh, judgment's coming and I care about your soul so much that I'll hand you a track. I'll invite you to harvest. I'll, I'll, whatever it is, right? Whatever the opportunity is that, because I want you to be saved. Because my heart breaks. Why? Because I know judgment is coming. Now the third lesson on fighting for truth and fighting with truth is simply that denying truth leads to defilement. Denying truth leads to defilement. Look at verse eight. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority, and slander glorious ones. So now Jude, I believe, is, is kind of speaking directly to the, the apostate false teachers, those that were endorsing or embracing their false teaching uh, in, in the congregation or congregation that he's writing to. He's addressing them directly, and he's talking about their defiled character, their defiled way of thinking, their defiled practices and behaviors. And interestingly enough, that word defiled means to be contaminated or to be corrupted. Now, First thing I want to notice, though, is where they get their authority from. Do you see what it says there? They derive their authority from their dreams. From their dreams. When we are not brought under the authority of God's truth revealed in his word, we will pull supposed truth from anywhere. That's why we got to be grounded in the word of God. And it says it was from their dream. They were relying on their own dreams as, as a source of divine truth, as a source of what God wanted to say, right? I had a dream that God said. Now, this can be a very, very dangerous habit, right? Um, I think most of us would agree that our dreams could be pretty out there. I had a dream where I could fly. Well, try that. 
I had a dream. This is the one that, that's fun. I had a dream. God told me I'm supposed to marry you. This hasn't happened to me. I'm not saying that, but I've heard it from people. Um, and it's like, great, when I have the same dream, right, I'll share it with you. You know, it's, it's you know, God told me because I dreamed it. And because I dreamed it, 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 it must be true. And, you know, and the reality for most of us, our dreams just simply tend to be fantastic versions of our fears, our hopes, our worries. They're, they're just kind of fantastic versions of those things for most people. One guy said, dreaming permits each and every one of us to be quietly and safely insane every night of our lives. So, um, Yes, God can speak to us through our dreams, and yes, God does speak through his dreams, but, but if you dream something and that doesn't line up with God's word, his truth, it's not God, plain and simple. These guys, however, they were, they were relying on these things, and so the first result is that it said they defiled their flesh. I dreamed it was okay to do this, this or that sinful thing with my body, so I did it. God told me I was supposed to go cheat on my spouse. God told me I was supposed to, I dreamed it, I dreamed it, the second thing it led to is they rejected authority. What's interesting is that word authority there specifically refers to the Lord's authority. The Lord's authority. And so it refers to God's word, God's truth, but it also refers to, by extension, his authority and what he's established, his church. It, it extends to, in the original word, to, to those that God has said, I have raised this person up as an elder or a pastor or a representative of me, right? I've raised them up to be authority in my church, and, and, and they, they reject that. They reject that. That word reject means to reject by not recognizing. You're not my God. I don't care that you're the, the, the pastor or the elder. Pfft. You can't tell me anything. Only God can. It's, it's reject. I don't recognize your authority, right? In 2 Peter 2.10, it uses the phrase that, that false teachers and people who believe in this, they despise authority, which means they, they don't respect anything that is, is uh, higher than them in, in dominion or power or, or established authority. They, they just reject it, right? So they defile their flesh, they reject authority, and then they slander glorious ones. These are the results of, of defiling yourself. Now that's an interesting phrase because in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, it says there that they, referring to false teachers, are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. And so it's the same exact phrase we find in 2 Peter. Now the word slander there, it, it means to mock or to speak disrespectfully about. But this phrase glorious ones is interesting. It's like, what is he talking about there? Well, the word in the original language simply refers to um, a being of, of great might and power. It doesn't infer any goodness or badness. It doesn't infer morality or immorality. It simply is referring to some being, a transcendent heavenly being specifically, that has might or power. And so it's referring to angels. Angels. Yet when you look at verse nine of Jude, and then we go back to 2 Peter uh, 2.10, which I'm gonna read in a moment, we see that it's referring to specifically a certain category of angels, which I believe is referring to fallen angels. Look at 2 Peter 2.10. It says, they, the false teachers, are not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power, in contrast to these glorious ones, do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. And I believe that's saying there's glorious ones, there's these angels that are, that are great beings of might and power, and then you got angels who are even greater in might and power, won't even slander these ones. And then look at Jude 9. 
It says, yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil, a glorious one, a being of great might and power, in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So these false teachers, these apostates, these fallen people, they're so defiled in their arrogant thinking that they did what even Michael the archangel wouldn't do. They slander glorious ones. They slander beings of great might and power. Contextually, I believe it's these, these ones that are fallen. And, and they, they, they slander them. They speak disrespectfully about them and the idea of where they mock them. And he's saying, Michael, the archangel wouldn't even do that to the devil. He wouldn't dare bring a slanderous condemnation. But these false teachers, these ones who are defiled in their thinking, they will mock, they will slander fallen angels, they will slander glorious ones in their power, the devil included, and, and, and Michael wouldn't even do that. What does this look like today? This is people who might travel from place to place or church to church, and they point the finger and they yell at demons. You demons, I have authority over you, and I have command over you, and I tell you to, to get out and be gone. You, you, you devil, you weak piece of garbage. You know, I, I, in my power, I bind you, command you to do that. You're nothing. You're nothing to me. You're nothing to this place. And that's a little bit dangerous because they're having a conversation with the devil about God when what they should be really doing is having a conversation with God about the devil. That's called prayer, right? Um, Satan's not scared of you or me. He's not intimidated by you or me but he's definitely scared of the God who dwells inside us. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint in prayer asking God to intervene against the devil. And that's the idea here, you know. I'm gonna command the devil to do it. No, you're not. Hey God, can you deal with the devil for me? Amen to that. You know, it's, it's just, it's a subtle shift, but it's an arrogant thinking that these, these false people have. Verse 10. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's error for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. And so these, these deniers, these rejectors, these rebellers against God tr God's truth, their character is defiled, their thinking is defiled, and then their practices become defiled. That word blaspheme there, it's the exact same Greek word as slander just in the previous verses. So the idea is that they mock and speak disrespectfully about spiritual truth that doesn't make sense to them. They don't understand the truth of God's word, so they mock it. And we see this all the time in our world today, don't we? Because some things never change. Instead of living by truth, it says they act without reason, without logic. They're led by their base instinctual desires to eat, to drink, to seek their own pleasure. That's what that phrase like irrational animals means, right? And then very quickly here, he mentions three things. He says, woe to them, right? That's just kind of like, that's like a major put down. <laughs> that's a major like condemnation, like woe to them, like judgment of God fall upon you. And he says, they go the way of Cain. The way of Cain is the way of religion without saving faith. That's what the way of Cain is, right? Cain brought his own offering to God based upon his own terms. 
that God, I know you want me to worship you, but I'm gonna do it on my terms, so here's what I'm gonna offer you. I know it's not what you wanted me to offer to you, but, but, but you, know, you take what I'm bringing to you. And God rejected it because it was not brought according to God's truth. And so the way of Cain is, is pride in one's own works, pride in one's own efforts, pride in, in, in the works of religion without faith, without submission, without trust in Jesus Christ. And then he says they plunged into Balaam's error. That word plunged means completely given over to. And the story of Balaam, if you don't know it, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. He was a prophet that God spoke through. He was a very gifted speaker. And one day the king of Moab was afraid of the people of Israel and so it offered him money and status to curse Israel. Hey, hey, if you would curse Israel for us, I'll give you money and I'll give you status. And then every time he went out to curse Israel, he ended up speaking these blessings upon them. And the king of Moab's like, dude, what's up? And Balaam's like, I just gotta say what God tells me to say, you know? And it happened over and over and over. But apparently, according to Revelation chapter two, verse 14, we see this verse that tells us what Balaam really um, wanted and what he did. He really wanted the money and status so much that he found a way to get around. Every time he opened his mouth, God would speak blessings. He's like, man, they're giving me money. I'm going to curse. Nope, I'll speak blessings. So he figured out a way around it. He told the king of Moab how to get God to judge Israel. He said, look, if you bring in these women to seduce the men and you get them to eat meat uh, offered to false gods, idolatry, bam, God will be mad at him, he'll judge him. In the era of Balaam, is someone leveraging their influence as a faith leader to lead astray for their own benefit. That's the era of Balaam. We don't see that in the world today, do we? Mm, some things never change. And then Korah's rebellion. And that's simply in the Old Testament where Korah and a group of others rebelled against the authority of Moses and against the authority of Aaron. And these were the men that God said, these are my representatives. I've endorsed them. I've raised them up. And so they rebelled against their authority. They spoke out against God's genuine appointed representatives and stood against God's truth. So when you put these together, you see workspace religion using spirituality to benefit self while rebelling against God's truth and God's authority and the authority that God has raised up in his church. When you put that together, what does that sound like? Every cult in the world today, every counterfeit faith, every twisted new age positive confession movement, every progressive deconstructing Christian, every liberalized church that is abandoning the word of God, abandoning truth in pursuit of pushing and adopting every radical cultural agenda that runs contrary to God's truth. That's exactly what that sounds like. And what's really interesting is apparently at the time of Jude's writing this letter, there was a sect within the Gnostics. You remember the Gnostics? These are these people trying to infiltrate the church and bring false teaching. There was a sect in them called the Orphites. And the Orphites specifically in their teaching regarded Cain, Balaam, and Korah as great heroes of the faith. Lifted them up as great examples. Here's three examples of people who did their own thing and they lifted them up, these Gnostic teachers called the Orphites. These three bad examples held up as examples of goodness of faith. The world today would never do that, would it? False teachers and false faiths and false churches, 
They would never hold up the bad examples of the good example, would they? And then in our modern world today, there's a lot of just false believers. They would never hold up or exemplify anti-Christian heroes as the pinnacles of value in their faith. They would never do that, would they? You know, sadly, it happens because some things never change. And we are called to fight for the truth, to defend the truth, to stand for the truth, to speak the truth, to encourage the truth. We're called to that as God's people. We're not called to just believe in the truth privately and live it secretly. We're not called just to that while, 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 while holding the belief that, that internally, you know, everything contrary to God, well, it's really not that bad, so I really don't need to say anything about it. You know, because ultimately, ugh, maybe our behavior is expressing we don't think any bad will really come of it. And the reality is, is judgment will fall upon those who don't have Christ. Judgment will fall upon those who don't have the truth. And so to fight for truth and to fight with the truth, we have to know the truth. We have to study it. We have to learn it. We have to internalize it. And then we have to recall it and we have to remember it over and over and over again. And that's why we start in Genesis 1 and we go to the end of the Revelation and then we start over again. I think Pastor Gary did that eight times in his 40 years here. Why? Because it's the word of God and we're to know it so that we could live it and share it. We also have to believe that judgment is historical. It happened to the Israelites who didn't believe in God's truth and promises. It happened to angels who thought they could go beyond their parameters and their place. And it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah who thought that that relationship and sexuality could be redefined by their own terms. If we believe that judgment will truly fall on all those who reject the truth of God in all things, if we really believe it, we should be motivated to be people who do everything we can to make sure others know the truth as well. Not everybody will receive it. Some will get mad at you for sharing it with them, you know, but we're called to be faithful to it. And then we have to believe that denying the truth leads to defilement. You know, be very discerning with what you watch and with what you hear especially online, you know, because there's, there's, there's a lot of bad teaching out there. You know, big churches, vibrant churches, and you listen to the teaching and you're like, eh, that's not quite biblical. Be very careful. Just make sure you're, 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 you're bringing everything back to the word of God when you learn it, lest you be influenced by something false. Be very careful not to replace trust in God with trust in self, as some of these false teachers are doing, and be very careful not to follow those who promote trusting in self. You know, if you just think it, it'll manifest. You could just bring it into reality yourself under your own power. Be very careful following that type of thing. Those who use their, their, their faith influence to benefit themselves at the expense of the people they're called to serve. And be very careful to stay true to God's truth regardless of what the culture says because it is truth and the culture will not ever change the truth of God's word. Sure, how we communicate that truth will change as, as methods of communication change, right? But the message will never change. And so to start with our encouragement to fight for the truth of God, we have to begin with an understanding that some things <laughs> will never change. Apostasy is not new. 
whether it's people apostatizing against the truth of God's uh, word in, in, in worship, in faith, in sexuality, in all of these areas. It's not new. The battle of truth has always raged. It is raging, and we are called to step into the fight. My prayer is that we all step in together, encouraging one another, praying for one another, lifting one another up, but extolling Jesus Christ, the one way to salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, for Jude. It's, uh, it's intense. It's, um, <laughs> it's true, Lord. And so we receive the truth of your word. Lord, we receive the encouragement. We receive the challenge. We receive the rebuke. If, if Lord, you're speaking into our lives any errors that we have in some of these ways, Lord, whether we've walked the way of Cain or the plunged in the air of Balaam or, or even been influenced by, by rebellion against you and your truth and your authority and the leadership you've placed, Lord. We don't want to stray, Lord. We don't want to be people who one day realize that we never knew you to begin with, Lord to be people who lived our own life of faith on our own terms, only to realize that because we didn't know you as truly our Lord and our Savior, that it's too late and judgment has come. So God, please work in our hearts that we would truly know you and live in obedience to you. To not perish, but to be people who have everlasting life and live that. And I just want to take a moment right now while we're praying with heads bowed and eyes closed. If God has spoken to you this morning, I know this wasn't necessarily evangelical, but if God is speaking to your heart, of your need to repent of your sin, to trust him, to start walking in obedience to him, and to know for sure that you are saved and you have salvation, if that's you in this room or you online, um, I just want you to raise your hand where you're seated. Let me pray for you. God bless you. I believe God is speaking to your heart right now. Anybody else in this room, God is speaking to you of your need to know him because Jesus is the only one that saves. If you're online, you could just let us know in the chat there that you'd like to receive Christ. But I want to pray with you right now. For those of you that raised your hand in the room and online, just pray this prayer with me. Say, Father God, I believe you. I trust you. I know I've sinned against you. I know I've trusted in myself over you. I know I've tried to live my, my own way of religion. I know, God, that I've deviated from your plan for human sexuality and all the things related to that. But God, I wanna be saved and truly saved. So I ask you now to forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Be my friend, be my God. Guide me and direct me in how to live for you. Teach me how to live in faith obediently and help me to shine the light of the gospel to those who don't yet know it. Thank you for loving me so much. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. Again, I know Jude is a little intense, <laughs> but it's good. 
it's good for us. It's good for us to be called to step up and to step out sometimes because truth be told, myself included, we can get complacent. We can get comfortable with the routine of just being a Christian and sometimes that war horn needs to just blare into our ears and go, hey, people are dying. And we have the hope within us. For those of you that received Christ this morning, if you did it here in this room, we have some new believers packs up here. I'd love to give one to you and pray with you and just to encourage you on this relationship that you have with God now to walk in truth and to know truth. If you're online and you received Christ this morning, just let us know in chat and we'll mail out one of these to you. But the call is real, the call is huge, the call is urgent because the devil is working overtime. And we as his people are called to stand up against him, not in our own power, but to be able to point to our God who is greater than him, greater than sin, and who gave us the answer to salvation. So let's be people that go out and preach it. We know that God is serious about it. We know that he will judge. And we know that defile, uh, defilement will just cause us to, to stray. So let's keep ourselves pure as his people. Amen? God bless you guys. Let's worship.